Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Wednesday morning, the 8th of November. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. There is a crisis in primary education that has never been seen before and one that is going to get a whole lot worse. Currently, national schools have a shortfall of 800 teachers in three months' time. An INTO survey indicates that there will be a shortage of 2,000 teachers. You see, parents want to send their child into a primary school. The main thing they're interested in finding out is who's going to be teaching me child this year for for the full day. And it's a bonus then if if the child has a teacher then for extra supports for a part of the day. But those extra supports haven't been happening this year, Michael. There's been 5,000 plus occasions in the first month of the school year where vulnerable children who get extra supports from the department weren't able to get it because their teacher had to step in and cover for these vacancies. So so th- this is a huge issue. And if, if that's going to be the statistic for the year, there'll be over 50,000 occasions when vulnerable children won't be having the supports that they're entitled to be getting. This is the General Secretary of the Irish National Teachers Organisation. In my view, this is uh, an infringement of their constitutional right to an education. John Boyle was speaking to me yesterday when he explained to me why he wants government to focus on a crisis instead of of wasting time, as he put it, on something that will not impact on a child's education. So that's why Cabinet, instead of going in there today, looking at notes about banning mobile phones or, or, or discussing the use of mobile phones outside of the school building, because they don't happen in the, in, in, inside in the school building in the first case. I mean, wasting time on that rather than dealing with the real issue here in education at the moment. And the real issue is that so many of our children don't have it. I mean, they already have the largest classes in Europe. Their schools are struggling for funding to keep the heat on over the winter. And now we have an, an added uh, crisis that we don't even have a teacher to teach the children in so many schools. Let's discuss this now with Fiona O'Loughlin, who is Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on education in Shannon Erin. Also with us on the line is Aon O'Reardon, the Labour Party spokesperson on education. Good morning to both of you and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Fiona O'Loughlin, could I start with yourself? What do you say to John Boyle and the teachers he, he represents? Why is the government wasting time on drawing up guidelines lines for schools and smartphones when thousands of children are being denied their constitutional right to an education. 
absolutely John, John makes a, a point in that there is a huge problem in relation to having teachers in the classroom now but measures have been put in place in terms of getting student teachers retired teachers and making more teaching places available having said that it is completely wrong to say that cabinet was wasting time looking at what could be put in place to support a mobile phone ban with primary school children. Can I just say that Cyber Safe Kids, well-known organisation in terms of supporting our children, did a survey of 8 to 12-year-olds mm. and 93% of them own their own smart device. Now, that's leaving them open to cyberbullying, which can affect a, a person for life, yep. exposure to violence, to sexual content, and also missing out on engagement in the real world. But the point so here, I think, I think that, that John Boyle was making, but I think the point here, I, I know they're very valid points, but I think the point that John Boyle was making here is that they can't use those phones in the schools anyway. They're banned from using them in the schools anyway. And whatever steps you've put in place to uh, uh, bring more teachers into classrooms, it's going to get worse. In three months' time, instead of there being 800 teachers short, there'll be 2,000 teachers short. And that's based on a response of about a third of schools. Uh, So in other words, it could be three times as bad as that. And it is a huge problem and the Minister is absolutely looking at everything that she can do to try to improve the situation. Just going back to the point, though, about schools, out, phones outside of the school situation. It was a really good example in Greystones where schools, the, the boards of management and parents of six schools got together and agreed a voluntary agreement mm. that they would have a phone ban. And that basically means we all know the peer pressure that young people are under and indeed their parents. When one child gets a smartphone, everybody else within the group, it's very hard to say no to them. So I think that schools absolutely do have a role. But remember, mm. this is a voluntary code and it's put in, what yesterday's decision has done is put in a framework that schools can adopt with, obviously, the support of the parents. And not only that, it gave funding to um, Webwise, which is another resource, and also to the Anti-Bullying Centre in DCU in terms of research in relation to cyberbullying okay. with young Let children. Let me go to Aona O'Reardon because I'm sure you'd support the idea of other schools following the example of Greystones. Look, of course, but I mean, the, you know, the government are doing a song and dance about something that's already a school policy. They've had a circular issued in 2018 uh, in relation to this. And I was reading the, the minister's statement yesterday when she said this was one of the main issues that's raised with her when she goes to schools. And I'd love to know what kind of schools that she attends, because when I go to schools and I speak to principals, the use of mobile phones by students is not raised uh, as a priority issue. What is raised is the fact that they don't have teachers to teach the children. Now, I think that the sign and dance that they say done about this is, is totally disproportionate to the issues that are, are actually affecting uh, schools and school communities. They don't have teachers to teach the children. I was in a school two weeks ago in Dublin West, and of course, I can't name the school because this is classic. The Department of Education is depending on schools not really being willing to come forward and speak about their own school community situation because of the, the reputational damage. They are operating on 45% capacity, 45% of the staff that they actually, uh, that's what they have. They are 14 unfilled posts. The INTO have given 
um, and, and the IPPN, the survey this, uh, on Monday relating to, to how big the problem is. It's most acute and disadvantaged areas. I have, um, you know, disadvantaged principals who are screaming for a DESH plus scheme for trauma-based supports for the most disadvantaged students in the country. Can't get any traction, can't get any... Any interest from the minister? She says she wants to have a review. But when it comes to this sort of soft politics thing, there's a huge emphasis on it. There already is mobile phone, smartphone policies in every primary school. The issue around smartphone use outside of primary school is outside of the remit of the minister for education. Mm. But this is classic. But it's popular. Focus on this. It's popular. Focus on this. Created a diversion because the real issue about not being able to get teachers to teach children is one that's mm. that the government are absolutely failing on. Okay, but it, it, it is popular, and I, I think that's what the INTO is saying, that the Minister is using this as a, a distraction, to distract us from the fact that teachers are, are not a, available to our children when they go to school. I walked through a principal for a while, yeah. and I got, I got a circular telling me how to, how to deal with parents in terms of tomorrow phone use. And I didn't have uh, teachers to teach these children mm. uh, Monday to Friday. I think I throw a circular in the bin. Okay, but hold on a second. I think, be- I think I, because I, I, I would feel that this minister and this government is not in any way in tune okay. with the real needs of our happening day today. Okay, but hold on a, a second, because what the INTO is also saying is that this didn't happen 15 years ago or before that or before the crash in 2008. And it's as a result of the cutbacks then. Indeed, a, a legacy of the Labour Party in government and Rory Quinn as the Minister for Education. Well, I, I, do you really want to go back to the economic crash? The INTO and, uh, the do. The INTO do. Well, 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 I mean, we can go back to the reasons that, uh, as to why that was caused, and we can talk about uh, yesterday, or we can talk about today. I would be more impressed, and I've said this. Well, I'm just putting the point to you that the INTO uh, has made. We had, an, we had an economic crash. I'm sure Fiona can tell you all about it, the reasons for it. And uh, as a result, changes were made. But uh, we have had, a bu- uh, you know, budgetary uh, leeway since around 2016, 17, in order to, to rectify these issues, and I, I don't blame governments in terms of the uh, you know the COVID reality of teachers wanting to leave because they you know, they want to, to spread their wings, uh, having having been you know forced to stay in the country for about two years. But the the, the issue that, that I really find most distressing about this is that if government were to say, look, we accept that this is an issue, and we accept that the schools are trying to are, are struggling to to to, to staff their schools, and here are a number of things that we're, we're going to do to address it. And we've, we, you know, we've assigned a, a high-level task force of people uh, within the education uh, f- field in order to try and address the issues. If I've got that sense from the minister that she was grappling with the issue and grappling with the problem, and it was all she ever talked about, but then I take her more seriously when she starts having uh, mobile phone mm. uh, initiatives, but she isn't. Okay. There is no, uh, there is no uh, a sense uh, from the department. That, that, that this is something that they care about. And I will say this much. Yeah. When it comes to, to schools and education, particularly on the East Coast, particularly in Dublin, particularly in, in, in areas around Dublin, and when it comes to disadvantage, this is at the, at, at the end of the priority list uh, for education thought within the department and the minister. What we much rather prefer to, uh, to focus on is sort of soft politics issue, issues around uh, smartphone right, well, use. Let, which me, are already let Fiona O'Loughlin respond to that because I, I, I'm sure no government could stand over the fact that there will be 2,000 vacant posts in national schools in a, a matter of months. The fact that there's 800 at the moment, the fact that it could be three times both of those figures uh, now and in three months from now. So what is the government doing? Is the government grappling with it as Aona Rurden put it? 
There are many facets to education um, and we can't ignore one at the expense of the other. Absolutely, government is grappling with this. Minister and her team are looking at ways that they can try to circumvent the situation before it escalates to the higher figure that the INTO have said. But I also want to say that absolutely this is not a distraction. I've spoken to many principals and teachers, not just in the last few days about children's use of smartphones, but over the last number of years. And as the use of smartphones increased with young children, one of the biggest issues the principals and teachers most definitely said to me was that children were falling asleep during the day because they had their smartphones in the rooms at night and were able but to sure, go But that doesn't matter. They could, sleep, they could sleep all day if there isn't a teacher there. Uh, no, and, but, uh, and this this is uh, fundamental. But no, but the point, the point that I am making is that there are many facets and we need to look at them all well, well, at the same time. For example, yesterday in the Education Committee, as Adam would know, we were dealing with the issue of consent and how RSE is taught in secondary school. That's an ambiguity. That's something that we can't ignore either. So there's a lot of many different issues. Absolutely. Okay. I guess I understand. So I'll ask you the question I asked you a moment ago. What is the government doing to address this problem? The, well, what, what Minister Foley has put in place, a strategy in relation to measures for student teachers when they're not in college to be able to sub. Uh, retired teachers so, have so non, non-qualified teachers is that good enough and it, it, is well, that, it, that our children are being taught by people who are not qualified to teach them well it's the next best thing obviously the best well the INTO suggested that you could bring people home from abroad and skip 12 steps of pay grades uh, and recognise the experience that they've gained when they're abroad well, I, th- I absolutely would agree with that. I think we should do it. And I've made a suggestion myself that we should have affordable housing in Dublin in particular for those, not just teachers, but those who are in essential services, have subsidised housing. And I think that would help start the problem. Um, there's a number of different areas, but I can assure you that the minister and her team are absolutely looking at this and they're, they're drawing up a plan to try to deal with what is coming down the line. OK. So there will be subsidised housing for teachers? No, I'm not... Guards... Saying, I, OK. I, I, oh, I you'd, you'd support the I idea. I have put that forward. That is not government policy. OK, but, uh, but, but the government isn't doing anything specifically that you can tell us this morning in relation to shoring up this shortfall. Well, I've, I've already spoken about how they... Ha- how a, a lot of teachers have retired at the early age of 55... And because of um, different reasons, it wasn't really, say, financially viable for many of them to go back teaching because of tax issues. That has been sorted now. So a lot of teachers who are still relatively young, 55, are going back on a substitute basis and on a temporary basis. That is certainly helping. There are also extra places within teacher training colleges and but I do appreciate that's not mm. solving the problem well, no, now it's but getting it's trying worse. to help down the line yeah okay uh, have you much confidence or in that Aon or Reardon or that children that are in primary school now will have a, a teacher or be guaranteed a teacher we're looking at a shortfall of 2,000 teachers in a matter of months no, no, I don't. And look, uh, on the smartphone issue, look, I'm the father of a five-year-old daughter. You know, yeah. I, I, I dread the day that she'll ask for a smartphone. Uh, but I, what's more important to me is the fact that she might go to a school that has a teacher who's fully qualified who can teach her and also is in an environment 
uh, of of education where they have the resources available to them to make her feel comfortable in the classroom and that they can maximize those human interactions which is what school is all about and this is my problem here is that the department wants to talk and the minister wants to talk about anything else but that mm. and having this sort of initiative around smartphones it's lovely but guess what smartphone use outside school is not within the remit of the minister it's not in her jurisdiction whatsoever it's nothing to do with her and schools already have smartphone policies but when you go to a school and they're crying out for teachers and they can't have, uh, you know, they're, they're taking the teachers from special education classes into mainstream classes because that's where they, that's the only thing they can do. And you have disadvantaged schools are being um, most profoundly affected because they can't get teachers. Mm. And you have the, these uh, same principals telling you that their children uh, are failing, they're falling back because of COVID, they're falling back now profoundly because they can't get qualified teachers. To hear this from the minister yesterday about smartphones, yeah. really, uh, you know, m- 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 to my mind, Undermines the relationship that schools want to have with this minister. Okay, they want to the, 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 a partnership with her. I, I, think everybody, I don't hear anything from okay. uh, from government as about genuine solutions to, to, to the teacher. Okay, uh, well, well, well w- we one solution I think everybody agrees is if you could do something about the housing crisis, and maybe we could conclude on this. If you were to provide affordable housing for essential workers, how do you define what an essential worker is? A teacher, a guard, a nurse, uh, but is somebody who works in a shop or a postman or an electrician not an essential worker? Uh, we all have uh, important roles in society, don't we? Yeah, well, we, we, I mean, I, I think particularly if you look at London, they have found mechanisms for the last 100 years uh, to designate what an essential worker is, what an important public servant is, and they've had a waiting system in terms of pay in London for the last 100 years. I think in areas uh, of of, of big cost of living uh, you know, expense that, that, that needs to be uh, formulated by government as well. It, it doesn't necessarily just have to be in Dublin. It could be in areas around Dublin which are particular pinch points as mm. well. But we can't have a scenario where, particularly in the east coast of the country, that we can't get teachers, can't get guards, can't mm. get people in the public service because those communities are going to be hurting. Fiona O'Loughlin, um, where, where do you draw the line and what you define as essential? It, it, it's an issue and I know that that is one, that's one of the challenges or the problems to try to get our senior civil servants actually looking at a policy to bring this forward. But I, I think that we need to. And I think the fact that they have the trust in London, which ensures that their essential workers that have they define, and that's mainly those in the education, in the health and in the justice system. And I think that, so say, for example, if we're talking about teachers, we also need to include, obviously, those that are in childcare, okay. because I would consider that as an essential as well. Mm. And I think that just because it would be a problem, and obviously mm. there a, are many a, a postman is, a, a postman is essential, a bin a bin man is essential, uh, and yeah. you know you're 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 entering into a whole new argument there, I suppose. Yeah. So, uh, so, mm-hmm. so how would you define essential then, if we were to look at? Well, I, I, th- I think making housing available and affordable uh, is the most simple answer that uh, I can respond with for everybody. Uh, I think we'll leave it there, though, for the moment. Thank you both, uh, indeed, uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, that's uh, Senator Fiona O'Loughlin, who's uh, Fianna Fáil spokesperson on education in Shannadair. And we were also speaking with the Labour Party spokesperson on education, Aon O'Riordan, TD. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, some comments coming to 
to us uh, this morning, a WhatsApp message from somebody who says, how many teachers are on sick leave or are on maternity leave and how many young teachers can't get full-time contracts? Thank you indeed. Uh, I'm not sure why uh, you're asking how many teachers are on sick leave. I presume we're all entitled to our sick leave or maternity leave uh, if uh, women are are pregnant, as uh, the case may be. Uh, There is a a question, though, uh, about uh, teachers getting uh, leave of absence uh, where you've uh, politicians working uh, in uh, the doll, uh, but hold on to uh, their post as a teacher, a career break. Uh, and I think uh, that if some of those posts were uh, extinguished or the contracts were extinguished and uh, they were offered to, to new uh, graduates. Uh, you may have a, a different situation, all right. Uh, somebody else then uh, sending us a, a text saying, I, I don't think the issue with smartphones should be left to teachers. Surely it's up to the parents uh, and that the parents are to blame if they're allowing their children to have smartphones when they're so young. Uh, another text from somebody who says, I see she's still ignoring the elephant in the room. This is Senator Fiona O'Loughlin. It was the same on The Tonight Show last night. Is it not the first thing to do to have a teacher to teach a child? Aon O'Reardon is right, says our caller. Kids already don't have their phones in the classroom. Why is this getting so much traction? Mm, I wonder. Thanks, Michael, says our caller. Thank you indeed uh, for that. And anybody who has been in touch with us so far this morning. If you'd like to comment on the programme, our phone number is 0419832000. You can text us or WhatsApp us on 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now to the death of a woman in Dundalk four years ago and questions about that death that were raised in the Dáil yesterday. Tishak, I want to raise the case of the death of Margaret Bracken. Uh, Margaret's body was discovered at her home in Dundalk on December 16th, 2019, and the Gardaí very quickly concluded that there was nothing suspicious about the circumstances of her death. Uh, Extremely quickly, the the sergeant and the inspector spent less than 10 minutes in the house before doing so. But they ignored all of the evidence which strongly suggested that a robbery and struggle preceded the heart attack that she did then uh, die from, as the post-mortem found. They ignored the fact that her body was naked. They ignored the fact that her handbag had been robbed uh, with a large sum of money uh, inside it. They ignored the fact that her final call had been to 999, that the CCTV control box was missing, that the kitchen had been completely, the kitchen table had been completely cleared, which was very unusual, that all the plugs were unplugged. Uh, The family have been let down extremely badly by the Gardaí. I know that uh, the daughter spoke to the Taunister. The question is whether the Taoiseach agrees that at the very least we need to have a coroner's inquiry as soon as possible into this. Uh, that's uh, People Before Prophet TD, Paul Murphy, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. The death of Margaret Bracken was also raised by another TD. This is independent John Collins. I want to raise the issue of um, the untimely death of Margaret Bracken as well, um, who was found um, naked in her home in Dundalk on December 16, 2019. The family had been campaigning for justice since her body was discovered in the hallway of her home in Dundalk. Um, the 
crucial issue here that the, the scene wasn't um, sealed off at the time and two Gardaí made a decision quite quickly that it was natural uh, causes that caused her death and all the evidence was contaminated hereafter. Um, Deputy uh, Murphy has made the point about the CCTV camera, the 999 call, the handbag missing, money taken from the house and it was the subsequent events that took place after that that needs to be inquired into. And I put a, minister, a question and a letter to Minister um, uh, of Justice in uh, 2022, and she replied that she had no statutory, um, uh, no statutory uh, role as minister to intervene. But I was calling for an independent inquiry, um, quite simply, um, around the circumstances of the death investigation uh, to date um, for the recommendations could have been done by Chief Superintendent uh, Rank from another division. And equally, the minister could appoint a person such as a senior lawyer or recently retired judge to review the evidence um, of the situation. And the fact is, there's no death cert, there's been no coroner's inquiry, and um, there has been no court case. And, and can the minister, uh, Taoiseach, look at this? Right, uh, that's uh, Joan Collins. This was uh, the response from the Taoiseach. In relation to, to the sad death of Margaret Bracken, and may I once again extend my condolences to her family and uh, all those who know her. Um, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with the details of the case, although I, I am aware of it. Um, my understanding is that the decision on whether or not an inquest is carried out is a matter for the county coroner. Um, and obviously, if there's any issue around uh, guard actions, uh, they would be best investigated uh, by means of a complaint to, to GSOC. Um, but I'll certainly um, let, let Mr McEntee know that it was raised here uh, in the Dáil again today. OK, that's uh, the Taoiseach, uh, Leo Radker, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday in response uh, to Paul Murphy and Joan Collins. Uh, I think we'll be hearing more uh, about uh, the untimely death of Margaret Bracken four years ago in the coming days. Now, if you'd like to make comment on the programme, 0419832000. That's if you want to ring us, text or WhatsApp 86 658 Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. The Garda Commissioner Drew Harris was in front of the Oireachtas Justice Committee yesterday, highlighting some of the challenges that the force face. The environment in which we police has become uh, more difficult. We seem to be dealing with more traumatic situations, and we're certainly dealing with a good deal more of abuse and uh, assault than Garda members might have faced 10, 15, or, or 20 years ago. And that's regrettable. But it's also an international trend in terms of what's happening to police services throughout the world. So uh, we're not immune to um, factors which are changing society and their view of policing uh, throughout, uh, in effect, uh, Europe. I, I think what we can say is that, by and large, we've worst, we've missed the very worst of what's happened to other organisations. And certainly that we don't in any way underestimate uh, how difficult the work is, the support that's required for individual members, uh, the support then that government provides in terms of, uh, of things that we've asked for and have been supported on in terms of increasing the uh, alliance for students joining the org organisation, for increasing the uh, sentence for uh, assault on uh, Gardaí, for improving the terms and conditions of, of Gardaí. All of these are things that we have taken forward and I have taken forward as, as Commissioner. So we've done an awful lot uh, and uh, we recognise as well then that we invest an awful lot and we, we, we invest a lot in our people through training and we want, to, we want them to stay in the organisation if at all possible. But and you, anything you, that we might do, we, we will be doing. But you don't think that number of resignations points to a morale problem? 
Well, what I'm, what I'm saying is I recognize all of the difficulties that we have uh, within the organization. We regularly meet, uh, one meets uh, monthly, and I regularly meet then with the, uh, staff, the staff associations. And the morale issues that we face, and, and I'm not avoiding any of these issues in terms of the difficulty of, of policing. At the same time, I point to uh, people's sense of belonging with the organisation, their sense of their uh, of the duty that they feel to the people of Ireland and their recognition of how important their work is. That's the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris. Let's speak uh, to Tara McManus, who's uh, the Assistant uh, General Secretary of uh, the GRA. That's the Garda Representative uh, Association. And a uh, very good morning to you, Tara. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, as a, a Garda, um, can you identify with what the Commissioner was saying there about your personal sense of belonging, your personal sense of duty to the people of Ireland and do you recognise the importance of your work and do all of these things put together make it a, a, a noble profession? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Um, well, look, Michael, I've been a member of Angarda Shikana for almost 25 years um, and I certainly can identify with the comments the Commissioner made in relation to that sense of belonging and very much feeling that the job that I do contributes to the community and a very important part, I suppose, of my identity and, and part of who I am. Um, I suppose my view on that has changed significantly since I stepped into my role here in the GRA and I now see it from, you know, certainly a more holistic point of view when I when I look at the various files and the various calls that I'm receiving in here in, in my new role. Um, I think the Commissioner... He kind of skirted around the issue of morale there. Um, I suppose it's the first time he's been on record uh, kind of identifying that is an issue without actually saying, yes, there is an issue. Um, so it, it is good that he has finally, you know, recognised that there is it, there are difficulties and that there are problems. Mm. Um, no, different so to, no, like, diff- no different to anywhere else, though, as he, he was saying at the beginning of that clip. Well, look, we, we would say that is not the case. I mean, there is nobody else in, in the country that does what we do. There is nobody else... You know, there is no other occupation um, mm. or indeed industry that you can compare to the work of a police officer. Sorry, um, I, I meant no different to police forces in or, other jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I, w- I would recognise that. And, and he did uh, allude to the fact that other police forces are, are dealing with much higher levels of resignations. And obviously they deal with much higher levels of violence. And I suppose we've always very much prided ourselves on the fact that we police in this country without firearms and that we uh, police with the consent of the Irish people and by doing so we work in the community. There definitely has been a shift and a change um, in, in recent years and of course that is, is backed up by the fact that 646 of our members have been assaulted so far this year with about 300 or so of those um, actually being what we would deem serious assaults where the member would have required hospitalisation. So you're talking about open wounds, fractures, head injuries, things like that. So it definitely is becoming a more dangerous job um, and it's becoming a more volatile job. And of course that can be, you know, you, you can account for that for lots of different things, I suppose, drugs and, and different things can, mm. can contribute to that. Um, but look, I mean, I, I did watch the, the commissioner and I, I took avid notes of, of the various mm. comments that he made. Um, and look, as I said, it, it's without him actually accepting there was a morale issue. He did allude to the fact that there are difficulties and that there are processes and things 
being put in place to try and and deal with that. So so that would be welcomed. Okay, and if police forces across the world are seeing increased challenges in their work, what do you think the difference is here if morale is lower here than elsewhere? Is it the chief of police? I don't know, can I say, that morale is lower here than anywhere else. Um, I can just refer to our own recent work in relation to the exit interviews that we did. And, you know, 100% of the respondents that I spoke to did mention morale. Um, I suppose we police differently. We have different communities. I think the morale issues that we have are are linked to a whole range of reasons, which, of course, I've spoken to um, very frequently about in in the last 12 months. but but I, I would say, you know, that as long as the commissioner is, is starting to address those issues and, and starting to actually acknowledge that there are problems, then, then we would see that there will be a shift and a change and, and a time to start, you know, putting plans and strategies and policies in place that can mm. actually address those. Um, in relation to the commissioner, obviously, we still have that ballot kind of hanging in the background there, you know, with, with the 99% of our member stating that they had no confidence in them. And, um, you know, it, it's... It's encouraging that the commissioner, I suppose, maybe is is using that to, to kind of start addressing these issues and say, well, look, there is a, a difficulty, there is a problem, and, and I, I need to be seen mm. here to, to address these You've problems. You've been critical of the minister as well. Helen McEntee was in front of the same committee yesterday, and she was asked a, a, about the criticism the GRA has made of her not meeting with the organisation, and she said that she meets with you uh, as often as possible. Are you satisfied now that both the minister and the commissioner are taking some steps to address um, the disquiet within uh, the force and the concerns that you have. We heard there about uh, the training allowance and uh, the increase uh, in uh, offences or uh, sentences uh, for people assaulting Gardaí and so on. Well, we're very, we very much welcome that training or the increase in the train allowance that's gone from 184 euros a week to just over 300. So, I mean, that could be the real difference for somebody who's considering a career in Angarda Siakana. Um, it's, 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 it's a fairly significant increase. So we, we very much welcome that. In relation to meeting with the minister, um, we've met her twice this year. Um, and obviously that, that, that second occasion was on the back of, of the, the no ballot confidence in the commissioner and, you know, on the back of writing to the Minister on a number of occasions, seeking to actually meet with her. Um, that meeting was quite progressive and it was quite positive. And, you know, we were very open about the difficulties and the issues that we had. Uh, so we felt that there was definitely some progression made there. We would like to meet with the Minister as often as, as we possibly can. Um, so I, I definitely think there, there has been a shift there and, and people are beginning to realise that there are significant difficulties in Angarda-Siakana and, you know, those responsibilities fall to the Commissioner and to the Minister to address those difficulties mm. and, and to do whatever we can to, to try and, and challenge them. I suppose our other issue here is the, the high number of resignations. Uh, the numbers mentioned in the Oireachtas yesterday were 116. They're actually incorrect. It's actually closer to 130 resignations that we've had and the last uh, bulletin that was actually released a couple of weeks ago, we actually had more resignations on that list than retirements. So we can see the trend now is starting to shift where we now are looking at higher resignations than retirement. And like that, again, is hugely concerning for us. Um, 
And again, something that needs to be urgently addressed is the retention issue within Angarda Shikona. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Tara. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us today. That's uh, Tara McManus, Assistant General Secretary of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, There needs to be uh, an awareness campaign uh, to counter the misunderstanding that young people have about vaping. That's that vaping is harmless. This is uh, according uh, to Ain to Councillor Emer Tobin, a councillor in County Meath who's on the line with us now. Good morning to you, Emer, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, You're highlighting uh, as well uh, a survey from Faroga, which really puts this into perspective. It's quite shocking, I think. Uh, one in three teenagers aged between 13 and 16 now vape. Is that correct? Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yeah, the Feroiga research that was um, released late October came out with some startling information. So 36% of all adolescents between the age of 13 to 16 are vaping. And many of them would never have smoked but they have taken up vaping. So there is this kind of um, viewpoint among some of them that, you know, they're doing something that is is less harmful than smoking. But we all know that vaping is not harm-free. And I feel, you know, on the back of this research that's come out and on the back of the, um, the bill the government published in May, that we're at a critical transition point in relation to establishing much stronger legislation, policy and information around this because, Mm. as as you mentioned, these numbers are incredibly high. Mm. It's um, quite unbelievable, although I suppose we see it every day in front of our faces, uh, Mm -hmm. people going around with a a monkey around their neck, uh, quite literally, um, uh, not just on their back, uh, but uh, quite often they wear them as chains uh, and they seem to be puffing on these things all day long. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a whole ease of access and the whole ease of being able to um, use a vape any time of the day is, is, is probably, you know, even more damaging from the point of view that they're doing it so regularly. And there is this, you know, image of it being incredibly cool um, as perceived by young people. And as I say, the information and the awareness has been brilliant over the years in terms of raising the dangers of smoking. But, you know, in the last four or five years, there hasn't been a clear message sent out by the HSC that this, this habit is incredibly addictive. It has been consumed by young people whose bodies are still developing, their brains are still developing. And, you know, the link between the chemicals that is mm. in vaping, you know, is not something that is, you know, been brought, you know, been shouted about loudly enough. Now, if you go on the Irish Heart Foundation site, you know, there's really good information there. And, and I would um, ask all parents of, of children and adolescents who are vaping to have a read of it there because, you know, you nearly have to go looking for the information. It's not something that's out in the public domain near as much as it needs to be because if we're looking at 36% mm. of young people vaping now, what figures are we going to be looking at next year and the year after? Yeah, uh, I mean, that statistic, like a, a third of 13 to 16-year-olds vaping, does anything else compare? Uh, I mean, you'd probably be talking about something like movies or music, you know, specific films that a third of that age cohort would have seen or uh, a particular uh, artist that they like or would consider to be their favourite. It's incredible. How do they afford to vape? It's very expensive. 
Well, disposable vapes, which are literally a scourge on our streets and, and road, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I see them everywhere when I'm walking around the town. You know, they're not as expensive. And, and certainly Ainsley would call for a ban on all disposable vapes because, as I say, they're easy to get. Even in this report, Michael, it's um, 12 to uh, 10 to 12 year olds mentioned how they see vapes. as. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, prominently displayed spots in their local shops. So if children that age mm. are able to see, you know, these on the lower shelves yeah, of their but, local shops, but one of them is one of them is an expense. What, what, a disposable vape is about a fiver, isn't it? Yeah, I think yeah, so. I think so. But I, I mean, one of them isn't that expensive. Uh, fiber is a fiber at the same time but um, you know as you say they're highly addictive this is nicotine uh, one of the most mm-hmm. addictive substances in the world uh, and buying one vape is one thing uh, but like any addiction uh, you need more than one a day I'm sure uh, and then it becomes a habit and it's an expensive habit I know it, it is hard to believe how so many can can afford them. Um, I suppose, you know, certainly not 10 and 12 year old children, but, mm. you know, children between the age of 13 and 16, they, they, they have possibly some part time job. They have their pocket money and they're, they're pooling their resources to buy them because, you know, the, 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 the stats speak for themselves. Mm. Um, but, you know, getting back to the awareness campaign, that is something that absolutely has to be front and centre, right. you know, in, in terms of, of young people's health. And mm. as I mentioned earlier, legislation is going through the houses. Uh, it's at fourth stage, but it isn't strong enough. And, and I mm. would be calling on the government that all e-cigarette flavours and disposable vapes have to be banned. Yeah. All forms of advertising have to be banned, and particularly online, because that's where the younger age group mm. is, is being targeted. And they're, they're, they're uh, modern-day you know. cigarettes. I suppose um, you'd have three or four kids smoking the same vape or vaping the same thing, whatever you call it. Uh, a bit like uh, years ago when kids used to share cigarettes, uh, you'd hear kids saying, yeah. butts on you. Uh, I mean, can I have the end of your cigarette and that sort of thing? Uh, and, uh, it, you know, you've uh, small amounts, uh, but they turn into these uh, expensive habits. But it's also causing other problems. Um, I'm not sure uh, if you've heard about the problems in, in schools that there's some parents who cons- are concerned about their children. They can't go to the toilet during class because the toilets are, are closed in some schools because vaping is so prevalent uh, and if you let the kids out of the classes during class time they'd be down in the toilets vaping. That's correct so um, I was just reading some information from uh, a consultant in this area who's, who's doing a lot of work to counter um, the ease with which they can be bought and he is saying that school toilets are literally the epicentre of vaping mm-hmm. so that just indicates the age that they're starting at now more and more schools are installing alarms you know they're, they're certainly trying to do their bit but at the end of the day we can't be expecting schools to, to tackle this problem alone it needs to um, you know as I say it mm-hmm. has to start with the parents also now, obviously a lot of parents mightn't be aware that some of their children are taking up this habit but, you know, a, a countrywide public media uh, campaign 
certainly um, HSE has to do far more. And because I think the legislation is currently at fourth stage, it is extremely important that all the TDs hopefully can add amendments to strengthen the legislation because as it currently stands, it is not strong enough and it's not going to make inroads to the numbers of, of children and adolescents that are that are taking up and continuing this habit. And another thing, Michael, there's a far greater chance that anyone who vapes will take up smoking, up to, to five times um, the chance of taking mm. up smoking. So all the good work that has has taken place over the last 20, 30 years in dealing with the whole smoking yeah. problem could go to waste unless there's a serious attempt at this stage to strengthen the legislation, that, mm. or not the legislation, mm. the bill that is currently going through the houses. Mm. Now, it's no surprise. Uh, I mean, um, when kids are, are vaping, uh, they're developing a nicotine habit and it's such an addictive substance uh, that uh, you're a nicotine addict. You're not necessarily a vapor or a smoker. Uh, and there's very little difference between the two. In reality, uh, I think uh, you sent us a, a note talking about some of the differences uh, to do with the smell of smoke and the dirt and your parents knowing you were smoking and uh, that you can sit in your bedroom doing it. Nobody knows it or in, in the toilets in the school. And nobody knows it. And that's why they're closing the toilets. And uh, that's causing some problems for children as well. Uh, but this is a craft, a craft that we've seen from the tobacco industry going back as far as the 1920s, 30s, certainly into the 40s with Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis and the cool characters on the silver screen uh, who couldn't be seen without a a cigarette. Today it's the vapes. Uh, And I mean, we're really facing big money and well thought through propaganda and advertising and marketing. Uh, Possibly the key to it is, as you said, the parents who may look at the information, who may ask their kids where they're spending their money uh, and uh, questioning uh, what they're doing with it and that sort of thing, and maybe looking around in the bedroom to see if there's any evidence uh, of vaping or that sort of thing. And indeed, Michael, vaping, you know, you know, the cigarette industries obviously would have been losing um, major revenue as less and less people uh, were smoking. But vaping, which started as a partial solution to cigarettes, has now created its own problem. And I just don't think that's been acknowledged um, at government level to the extent it should be. But an interesting point, Ireland is actually one of the last countries in Europe that is banning vaping to under 18-year-olds. And another interesting thing that I, I learned when I was just doing a bit of research for this, New Zealand is is is, is working towards making it uh, smoke-free by 2025. So there's incredible initiatives going on across the world. Australia has banned recreational vaping. You can only get it now by, by prescription. So can you see that there is much more happening in other countries because they're acknowledging the seriousness of the problem And I just hope that, as I say, the TDs will do the right thing and call for far, far stronger legislation to to be um, enacted um, when the time comes for it to come before, you know, the the various, I think, stage five now of of the the houses. But, you know, this is too serious. I don't think children are, are, are being told how dangerous it is. They think because it tastes nice, it looks nice, all the influencers on social media are promoting, not all the influencers, are they? a certain cohort. Right, yeah. yeah, there is, mm, there's, yeah. there's a certain amount of it on TikTok and Instagram and that isn't being tackled on it. Mm. We need all, we need a complete prohibition on the promotion and the advertising of, of e-products or e-cigarettes because, as I say, it is only going to store up really, really serious problems up down the line. 
Okay, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Saying to Councillor in Mead, Emer Tobin, Susan in Thank touch you. with us, saying, "I can't believe how vaping has become so widespread. It's ruining the air quality everywhere I go. Thick clouds of vape smoke." Uh, it's not only obnoxious, but a potential health hazard. It's time for people to realise that their vaping habit affects those around them as well as themselves. Uh, we uh, another uh, message uh, from Hillary, who is in Dundalk, absolutely fed up with the vaping industry's blatant targeting of young people. The colourful packaging, enticing flavours, flashy adverts are clearly designed to appeal to adolescents. It's unethical and irresponsible for companies to profit from the addiction of our youth. Well, thank you if you have been in touch with us so far today. If you'd like to make comment, our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 086 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. The Oireachtas Subcommittee on Mental Health heard yesterday from a number of organisations about the mental health care for migrants and ethnic minorities in this country. One of the groups in front of the members was Duras, which promotes and protects the human rights of refugees and migrants who come to this country. Let's speak to Sue Windle, Welfare Coordinator with Duras. Good morning to you, Sue. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. And you told the committee that quite often the people you support are, are, are different from those of the general population. Uh, is that because uh, the people that you represent are sometimes traumatised because of their journey to this country and or subjected at times to anti-migrant sentiment or discrimination as the case may be? Um, yeah, I suppose with the anyone who, who has to be forcibly displaced you know, there there is going to be trauma there, whether that's from persecution or war or conflict or, um, you know, differing beliefs in religion, um, and, and they seek asylum. So, you know, the, the migration process is, is traumatic. Um, the fact that they've had to leave their homes is traumatic. Um, and then, you know, when they arrive in, in, in the safe country, a lot of times the processing piece of processing the trauma, and it's often when you settle that all of the post-traumatic stressors, you know, um, become evident and they start to appear. And on top of that, if you, you know, if you're if you're feeling like the the host country that you're in, you're not welcome there. You know, that's going to exacerbate the trauma as well that you experience. Mm. So I think it, it's both of those things. Mm. Yeah, uh, and then there's what do you do with yourself? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been uh, unemployed, Sue. I was uh, unemployed uh, for some time. It's a long time ago, but my God, I was bored out of my mind. Uh, And uh, you've been hearing from people uh, who've told you uh, that they're forced into idleness um, because um, they're not able to work uh, in international protection um, circumstances for six months. Uh, that is only a recent change. Uh, yeah. Quite often people hadn't been able to work for years, but this leads to incredible boredom. Yeah, so I suppose we, 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 we welcomed that change in policy where whereby you know people in the asylum process were, were able to access the labour market um, but prior to that, you know, I suppose, again, it's, it's coming back to the conditions um, 
the, the congregated settings um, and the fact that you, you, you may want to integrate and you may want to to work and you know but you're restricted from doing that and it gives you a lot of time to to think about you know all of the ways that you you've been displaced and you've been traumatized and again I suppose that can lead to to other you know things like substance misuse and domestic violence um, and you know since since they, the new policy change came in and, and people in the asylum process can work, you know, it has made a great change. Mm. However, at the moment, we're seeing a huge backlog in those processes. So what should take three weeks is now taking 130 days. So, again, it's causing frustration um, and forced idleness is just, you know, it's just another it's another layer of, of trauma yeah. for people who probably just want to get on and move on. And, you know, like you said, being unemployed is, it's, it's awful. It's, mm. it's, you know, yeah. it's a very difficult thing to go through, particularly when you want to work. Mm. Filling, fill, fill, filling out your day, uh, having a sense of purpose, uh, I think. Absolutely. Is the thing. Uh, and when people don't have that sense of purpose, they can withdraw into themselves. That's it. And I suppose the, the working piece as well, you know, we have clients here who started jobs and, and through working, they've made friends with, you know, with, with local people, local communities. They've started playing soccer or sports and, you know, it, it really does assist and aid that integration piece. Uh, and it breaks down the barriers. You know, we we have people who've started working with people that maybe they thought wouldn't, you know, wouldn't take too kindly with working from someone from a different background or an ethnic minority and now, you know, they're they're great friends or they get on really well. So it's crucial to allow people to work because it's 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 a huge piece of integration. Mm. And it works. We know it works. Mm. It works really well. And I, I take it the type of activities that you're talking about, sport in particular, uh, would uh, be more uh, in terms of uh, younger people, children, uh, when you're talking about um, that type of uh, thing to uh, integrate, uh, as you say. Uh, but it, it must be very difficult for children for a, a number of reasons. Uh, quite often, the family income isn't the same and they're going yeah. to school and they're looking at kids who have, it would seem, all the wealth in the world whilst they've little or nothing. Yeah, and I, you know, children in the international um, protection system, we know from studies that they're disproportionately, you know, disadvantaged in, in all of all of socioeconomic ways, their finances, um, their learning, their development. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very difficult for children growing up in, in, in that environment to... And I suppose the other piece with, with children is they're not represented. So particularly in our education system, you know, we have children from all sorts of backgrounds, but all of the teachers and the teachings mm. are all, you know, it would be lovely for them to see somebody who represented them, you know. Yeah. So I think the education system needs needs far more diverse you know, teaching um, cohort. It would be, you know, yeah. we need more diversity in the education system for these children who, you know, who look to their teachers mm. um, and their peers. And all of these are challenges. And I suppose what you were talking about yesterday is trying to overcome these challenges to protect people's mental health. Uh, how does language feed into that? So language, it, it's, I would say, the 
one of the biggest barriers to overcome because when you don't have a voice or you can't speak for yourself, you know, it, it really, it puts you in, in a deficit um, with any sort of representation for yourself. So language is, is a huge part of integration and, you know, the, the, we've, we've seen clients who have come in with no no English at all, and then you know to watch to watch them kind of flourish mm. and, and you know a year down the line they're they're fluent in English. But some families don't have you know don't have the luxury of being able to access those classes. So we have families that come in through different immigration pathways, for example, family reunification, um, and they would be the more hidden families. So so the, we have you know we have families that have come in through that pathway who have been here for a very long time but have never never been able to access English courses or mm. English language courses and you know so it, there's still a lot of work to be done yeah. around the language piece and um, I suppose as I say so these are all challenges uh, that you would hope that people would be able to overcome we all have challenges in our daily life I don't need to bore you with uh, the challenges I had this morning trying to get the car started or the way the computer didn't work or whatever else and at the end yeah. of the day I go home and I say oh my god what a day uh, but I would, ne- I, I would never complain about any of the things that we've been discussing I'm lucky enough not uh, to have any of those challenges uh, and they're on top of the challenges that the rest of us experience uh, just through living on a daily basis. Uh, and that's why you're saying that special supports need to be put in place for uh, migrants and ethnic minorities. Yeah, I suppose, you know, having having an understanding within, you know, particularly the mental health services, that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It can't be. Um, you know, having... I suppose when you look at mental health, like there's there's certain cultures where, you know, they don't have the vocabulary for mental health or depression or anxiety. It doesn't exist. So having, you know, culturally competent or, you know, staff who understand that, you know, people will present, particularly ethnic minorities and migrant minorities, will present and still need the the support but won't be able to maybe advocate for themselves or Mm. there's more layers of difficulty when they do present with mental health difficulties. More layers of difficulty, more challenges, uh, more problems, uh, I take it, uh, in terms of uh, some of uh, the issues you mentioned, like substance abuse or domestic violence uh, and uh, stigma then as well about seeking help. Yeah, I mean, we, we know in certain cultures, you know, mental health is, you, you just, it's it's addressed differently to, to maybe how the Western world would address it. Um, a lot of people would turn to, you know, religion or um, it just isn't spoken about um, in general. It's, it's seen as a shameful thing. Um, so it's breaking down that stigma and informing people from migrant backgrounds that, you know, it is okay to ask for help, it is okay to seek help. Um, and also responding to to people from migrant backgrounds in a holistic way rather than a westernised approach. You know, we know that some of our clients who struggle with mental health would be, you know, the first port of call would be to be given medication. And, and you know, that, that's across the board, but to understand that that, that may be not the, the correct approach for this person um, 
you know, it, it, it's kind of pathologizing the symptoms and, you know, mm. well, this person seems depressed, so we'll just, we'll treat the symptoms. But that that necessarily won't work for everyone, uh, for for people from different cultures. And another, you know, another pathway might be more beneficial. And it's just, it's having that in mind. It's 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 keeping keeping that in mind when policies are being designed, that yeah. all staff should be culturally competent. That's it. And I, I think you gave uh, a lot of food for a thought for the politicians and policy makers uh, to mull over, but uh, indeed uh, for all of us uh, to think uh, about uh, with uh, our new neighbours uh, in this country, and there's many of them, of course. So thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Sue Windle, Welfare Coordinator with Doris. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we've had a, a lot of talk uh, recently on the programme about how Bus Erin is just not capable of delivering a reliable bus service in County Meath, particularly in Rathoth and in Ashburn. But we've had uh, a lot of people in touch with us on foot of those conversations uh, complaining about bus services here, there and everywhere. And indeed, a few people in uh, County Louth and in Drogheda. And Paddy McQuillan, Independent Councillor on Louth County Council, joined us now because he's written to the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Transport uh, about local services. He's on the line. Good morning to you, Paddy, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, you're particularly concerned about the 173. Hey, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yes, I am, yeah. Uh, I last, uh, the Bank Holiday Weekend in particular, on the Friday of the Bank Holiday Weekend, the town service, uh, the 173, did not run to Monday more at 9, 10, 11 and 12. Uh, now, I got called from uh, uh, service users who were stranded uh, because of this and it seems that on this occasion on this occasion it was down down to spare uh, parts not being available uh, and they had to wait for parts to come in. Now this this is unacceptable I suppose you know in this day and age for, for a town service for buses to be waiting for parts to come in so that and it's not there. It wasn't down to drivers. It wasn't down to staff. It was just down, literally down to parts. Yeah. But that's left on all comfort to the people who were stranded. But so the bus broke down. Is it the same bus that would have arrived at 9, 10 and 11? Was it one bus that uh, broke down? You, you see, that's the problem we have. Uh, it's, it, the problem we have with the town bus service, it, it's, the parts is only a small percentage of, of the problem. Mm. Uh, the, the problem is we, we need an increase in bus service, especially the 173. It only runs once once an hour, and so, but it needs to run more. So that's why I, I, ripped, I wrote to the uh, Joint Directors Committee and requested five things from them, uh, and one of them was an increase in the bus service, the 173, and to have it running on, on a Sunday as well, because the D4 and the D5, they run on Sunday, but the 173 doesn't. Hmm. So... Uh, they did write back to me and they said they're going to look at the possibilities and they are having a recruitment campaign for drivers. But it's not just the, bus, the buses themselves, it's the infrastructure around the services around the town too we need need addressed. Like, uh, we need bus shelters. Mm. We need one at the M1 retail park and the North Road retail park. We need bus shelters at uh, Georgia Street. Georgia Street now has become the busiest bus stop in the town. Yeah. 
like for buses going north and south, private and bus seven buses used both them bus mm. stops now. Why, 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 why isn't there a bus shelter in either of the retail parks? Uh, I mean, is that not down to Louth County Council and the planning permission uh, that went with the construction? Surely you'd say, look, you know, you need to have a, a bus stop and a bus shelter uh, uh, as part of your application. <laughs> you would think so, yeah, but that was long before my time there. When that came oh, out. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I'm just wondering what what's at the root of it. It just seems ridiculous that you have a bus stop without is, a bus it, shelter. It does, it does. And the NTA now have assured me that they are dealing with the, the owners of both retail packs and they are in discussions with them installing bus shelters there. So I will I will follow up on mm. that. But as far as the, the ones in George Street go, well, mm. then the NTA and the Lower County Council need to work together. And the, the response I got from for, for George Street was that there's not much room going north outside the, the, the retailers there, the shops there. Now, there isn't much room, but you could put some sort of structure there. But going south, there's plenty of room. But they do... They said, uh, what did they say? Something like, there's challenges due to the incline of the footpath. Uh, I don't know what that means. You know, it's a bit it, well, it means yeah. a, there's a slope and you'd have to be a bit more yeah. accurate uh, erecting a bus shelter. It's a, it's a bit it's a bit of a cop out, really. and, and they're saying that there isn't room uh, going north uh, for a bus shelter, yeah. is it? That they can't it's put some it, sort of covering. Yeah, uh, well, oh. they're, they're going to have engineers look at it for me. This <laughs> is what they this is what they say. But and, I will, and, I will. And it would be the NTA who pays for it, is it, or was it? Would it be the council? It'd be the NTA, right? But okay. It's all because but it's, you have to do it with the council because it's actually on council land. Yeah, mm. do you know what I mean? Mm. And now, and there's another big problem we have with the bus service is that we have the D4 and the D5 stopping every 20 minutes outside the bus station on the dual target. This is seriously dangerous. Mm. Now, initially when that stop went there, that stop, there was a bay meant to be put in there, cut away, so the bus could pull in off the geocaltry. Mm. But some genius behind the desk in Dublin decided to run the route without putting the bay in post. Right. So you have a bus stopping just around the corner. People get the green light, they go around and they're stuck in traffic and then they get frustrated trying to jump around the bus. And it, it, it's, a, it's an accident waiting to happen, really. And now, that's just at the traffic lights, is it? That's the one just yeah. at the traffic mm. lights. They are heading north on the dual carriage. Mm. Now, a lot of people have said that to me. And I've seen it, he says, if you're coming down the North Road and yeah. you get the green light to go left, you go around that corner and there's, there's, there's a car right in front of you there. So it, it, it can be dangerous, especially if people don't know that does a bus come to stop there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, look, the whole thing, the, the, the thing is, the town is getting bigger. The population is getting bigger. We need more buses on the road. The, the, the goal is to get to get people out of their cars and using their buses. Yeah. Town bus promotes social inclusion. Uh, it combats social isolation. Yeah. Uh, we need more frequency and we need them running on Sundays as well. Yeah, well, I, I just don't know um, uh, about the people uh, who have responsibility for providing public transport, uh, how uh, much uh, they've ever relied on, on public transport themselves, because I, I think a lot of these things just wouldn't happen if you had any real understanding of what it's like to be waiting on a bus. And I wanted to ask you about the 173 and the bank holiday. You said it didn't run at 9, it didn't run at 10, it didn't run at 11. If you were at the bus stop at 10 to 9 waiting on the bus to come, uh, would you have known it wasn't going to come, or would yeah, you? Yeah, I think people can go. You can go online, and they'll tell you online. But that's all right if you can do that. There's mm. A lot of people. The town service is, is used by a lot of elderly people. You know. Yeah. They, so they so, so, so if you didn't have the app, 
You'd be left standing at the bus stop till 12, was it? Well, that's, that's, that's what happened on Friday there. And I, I know it was a fairly unique situation there, mm. and I, uh, but it still happened. Yeah. Whereas if you, if you had a bus running every 20 minutes or every half an hour, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure, I mean? uh, yeah, and I'm sure nobody did wait till 12. I'm sure everybody just gave up and thought, what am I supposed to do? And carry their shopping or whatever else it uh, was. And I can't remember what the uh, weather was like, <laughs> but it was yeah. been pretty well, I think most of, them, most of them actually rang me, I think, before they'd done that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. But, uh, look, it's, un- it's unacceptable. We need, we need, we're what, what grown, the town has grown, there's a bigger population. The town service is going to expand as the town expands north and and south, like we're nearly out to Baymore Cross as well down now. Mm. So the town service will expand, and we need more buses on the road. Yeah, and we need more frequency. I've a text uh, somebody from somebody, Paddy, uh, who says the Moneymore bus service is always out of service. Please advise passengers using uh, the one seven three. They can also avail of the D four and D five service from the opposite side. Uh, that's uh, opposite McDonald's takeaway, uh, and that's uh, right. Dominic's takeaway. It could come in handy. Uh, when the 173 isn't running uh, because these services run every few minutes. Yeah. See, the, the problem with the 173 is if a 173 bus breaks down, the money more bus suffers mm. because the, the, the logic being the D4 and the D5 kind of serves at that side of the town anyway. Yeah. Whereas on, up the other, on the south of the town, the 173 is the only bus that goes that route. Mm. You know, so I can you understand the logic of it. And I'm not having to pop any of the drivers here. Or any no, of the no, staff. no, 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 sure. It's you know, not their fault. They, they can, they can yeah. only do what they're, they're given from the government. Yeah. But, mm. but now, the, these requests, I have, I got the replies from the NTA, so I just keep chasing up and see yeah. where we go with it. But, yeah. but it, 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 if, if, the, if the fan belt goes in the bus, uh, it's not the driver's fault. If it's lashing rain, it's not the driver's fault if there isn't a, a bus shelter and so on. Somebody asking about outside Diffy, no bus shelter there. Should there be one there? I presume there should be one at every bus stop, really, shouldn't there? Well, there should be. In, in, in an ideal world, like, you know, like if you look at like the, the estates where these buses run, mm. the settled estates with elderly people, you know, understanding it in inclement weather, lashing rain, winter winter months, you know, some sort of structure at nearly every spot would be ideal in an ideal world. But the government doesn't seem to want to do this. But as, as mm. we're getting bigger and bigger as a town, we're going yeah. to be a city soon, whether we like it or not. We're going to need this infrastructure. Yeah, well, maybe it's no wonder people use their car. Paddy, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Paddy McQuillan, Independent Councillor on Louth County Council. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, I was back to business in uh, the Oireachtas yesterday with uh, both uh, the Dáil and uh, the Shannon resuming business after uh, the midterm. And indeed, uh, flooding in North County Louth was raised in both houses. I today want to discuss the devastation caused by flooding last week in, in North County Louth. Um, it has been a, a very tough week for for all people in 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 my home area. I firstly want to commend the people who went for days without rest, saving their homes, saving their businesses, saving their farms. Some of them, unfortunately, did not get to save their homes and their farms and their businesses. Um, there are still buildings who are, there are still flooded in County Loud. There are fields still flooded. There are driveway. People are still not able to access homes and roads currently, as we speak, a week later. Um, I also want to thank the council workers who were there. Um, they worked tirelessly all week, um, but there just simply wasn't enough of them. We didn't have enough 
of our council workers um, on, on site, on, on, on scene, on, over, over, the, over, the, over the days of the flooding. Um, there was no civil defence deployed. There was no, no, no army deployed. We were in a desperate way in North Loud last week. And not a lot of people did, fe did feel isolated. They felt alone. And only for public reps. Um, fielding calls and screaming, looking for help for people. Um, I don't think I don't think they would have got it. Um, it was a very very tough time. But I want to really call today for a debate on emergency planning. What should local communities expect from our local authorities when there is such an issue like this? You know, should we? Should, you know, are we are we relying on the good nature of neighbouring farmers to pump out your homes, or are we are we and a waiting list on 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 neighbourliness, or are we should be relying on local authorities, civil defence, and our authorities to be able to support people in their homes? Um, there was elderly people stuck in homes for three days last week, and. and the road wasn't going to be pumped. We had a scream for the fire to get permission for the fire, fire brigade to pump out the, the, the road, to give, to give access to people. Um, and currently, at the minute, we have, we have schemes. Thankfully, we have schemes for, for enterprises. We have schemes for homes. But currently, we have no scheme for agricultural enterprises that have been destroyed. So we have fields destroyed, fences destroyed, and, and fodder absolutely destroyed, rivers redirected and ruined, and also tons of access roads destroyed all across North Loud and we really do need support for, 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 for the agricultural enterprises in the area. Right, that's Martina Fall, Senator Erin McGrain. Many questions for Louth County Council. Here's a, a response uh, from Fiona O'Loughlin. I know that the government has extended emergency business flooding schemes to sports clubs, to community and voluntary groups. Um, the fact that it is for small businesses who are at the loss of more than €5,000, farming is business as well too, so I'd find it hard to think that uh, farming families, farming enterprises would be a left, left outside of this. But we certainly will look for clarification. And also, we will look for debate on emergency planning, because to be fair, the centre makes a fair point that we need to know there are expectations of local authorities of civil defence, be that a voluntary organisation. So we, we, we need to know what, exa what exactly the, uh, the regulations are. Fine Gael Senator John McGahan wanted to know too if Louth County Council is living up to those expectations. The issue was, and again I came across, across this time and time again throughout the Cooley Peninsula, the water had nowhere to go because the drains were blocked, the culverts weren't being maintained. So while you can never negate for nature, you can try and mitigate it, you can try and minimise it with proper infrastructure being looked after. And that has to fall on the local authority to make sure that drains and culverts are clear. Because when this type of flash flooding happens with water coming down off a mountain and the water has nowhere to go because the drains aren't being cleared, that's something that's really frustrating for a lot of, lot of people. The other issue at Trinity Close is right behind it, there's a wooded area called the Manse. And in recent years, a lot of trees have been cut down, a lot of hedgerows in that area have been cut down, and they were natural flood barriers. And indeed, a stream was completely diverted. Man, a man-made diversion, and that stream was diverted right into the path of the 10 to 12 houses in Trinity Close. So again, that's something that's really, really concerning. When we look across at other parts of North Louth, we have seen some roads completely wiped away. The Deer Park Road in Ravensdale, the bridge there doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, further up in Ravensdale and Ballymacallit, where you had a stream coming off, it's, it's akin to a mudslide. So many homes and gardens absolutely destroyed. And again, what I would say is that 
I, I have to be considerate of the response of the local authority in these situations. And I would ask questions to say, why weren't the civil defense called in at one stage? Why weren't the army called in at one stage to help with sandbags? Over 2,000 to 3,000 sandbags were uh, provided to people right throughout the Kuri Peninsula to try and help with this. But this is a huge emergency situation. And it should have been all hands on deck. But it's just an excusable minister when I saw so much flooding around the place, when we had the fire services there, and the key thing that the fire services kept saying to me was, we have nowhere to pump this water because this drain is blocked or that drain is full. We have nowhere for this water to actually be pumped and we just have to spend the next few days waiting for nature to take its course. I just don't think that that's acceptable uh, in this day and age that we have seen so many drains and culverts blocked, which wouldn't have made this any better. This was still going to be a, an issue, but it certainly would have minimised it, it certainly would have mitigated it, and it certainly would have been helpful to a lot of the people who have found themselves flooded in the last week and a lot of businesses that have been destroyed. Finnegale's John McGann speaking in the Shannon over in the Dáil. There was more questions about Louth County Council's performance. I think a big question is in relation to government funding to make sure infrastructure such as roads can be reopened, that bridges can be fixed. And then we look at what mitigations are possible in North County Louth. And I have a very specific question in relation to Dundalk because we were probably only one rain away from thousands of houses um, being flooded. If I'm talking about the likes of Clunenda, based. Um, everywhere basically between the, you know, off the Avenue Road, between the Red Barns Road and um, between the Red Barns Road and the Alphonsus Road. Um, as I say, it's a, it's a huge number of estates and the fact is we do not have the capacity to deal with the amount of wastewater. We generally have flooding on a normal day. So what that tells me is there's a difficulty between Irish water and between the council, between the subcontracted company that operate there, the local um, pumping station. And I think an assessment needs to be made because we cannot deal with the capacity of water. That's new estates, new factories and whatever that have been added in recent years. Okay, that question uh, about capacity from Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Murakou, he was putting that point to the Taoiseach Leo Bradker. Deputy O'Murakou raised the issue of flooding uh, in North Loud. Uh, in Carlingford and elsewhere. I want to extend my, my sympathy and solidarity to the people affected. Um, there's a scheme for residents, which is uh, not just for homeowners, it, it applies to, to landlords and renters too. Uh, a scheme for businesses, an enhanced scheme for businesses, and there will be a special allocation for public infrastructure as well. Uh, I can't answer the specific question he asked. Um, I, I don't have the information expertise to answer it, but was, we can certainly follow up on it. And that's uh, Taoiseach Leo Bradker uh, responding uh, to that point in the Dáil yesterday. I think uh, there'll probably be more talk uh, about uh, Louth County Council's before performance before and after the flooding for some time to come. Uh, speaking of buses, as we were a moment ago, somebody saying uh, it's just a joke. The Money More bus is unreal. People just left waiting for it. Another caller says, I wait every morning for it. Uh, there is no excuse. And somebody else says there should be a bus shelter outside of St. Peter's Church in uh, Peter's Church, even in Drogheda. Thank you if you've been in touch. That's the final word. Our programme uh, has come to its conclusion. Maggie McGuire Research today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our, our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money. 